welcome to the Cafe Obscura podcast, a podcast about foul magic, strange lore, and the very worst of bad advice. Hosted by Kat Heath, Emily Silvest, and Nia Thamakis. Come in for the stories, stay for the bad rune reading. Good evening, and welcome to the first episode of the Cafe Obscura podcast, where we discuss sundry lore, foul magic, and dispense the very worst of bad advice. I'm Kat Heath. Happy Halloween, I'm Emily Sylvest. Greetings everyone, I'm Nia Thamakis. And we're super glad that you could join us for this necromantic flavoured episode. Now, because this is the first episode ever, we figured it would be good to give you a general overview of how we do things at Cafe Obscura. First, we say hi, because that's polite. Then, we talk about any weird happenings over the past month because we all have pretty weird lives. Finally, before we take a dive into our strange tales and even stranger discussion, we pull a rune and give an intentionally terrible yet hopefully funny rune reading because we like to live up to our promises. And well, we did promise a bad rune reading. But we don't just leap straight from the rune reading and into the discussion, we prepare you first for what is to come with three fast facts about the show topic. Then we tell our tales and let the conversation take over before finishing off with some truly awful magical advice. So grab a cup of the good stuff. It's time to get weird. And we're going to start by talking about some of the weird things that have happened to us this past month. So guys, you got any strange stories? Well, uh, my dreams have definitely been um, grade A, strange, bizarre dreams. <gasps> yeah, yeah, mine too. Visitations, strange prophetic omens. <laughs> <laughs> Hard same. <laughs> Tis the season. Tis the uh, reason for season. Yeah. It's true. <laughs> Um, the other crowd take or took the uh, yogurt container again. So normally what we'll do when I make a fresh batch of yogurt is they get the first scoop as sort of a, hey, let me share, keeps things, you know, copacetic between everybody. And um, this is the third or fourth container they've taken now. So I guess they really like those jars. Um, nice. But yeah, they, they took another one. Wow. Even from the last time that we talked? No, same one. Ah, okay. Okay, yeah. We'll find out tomorrow if they took that one. <laughs> took the new one. <laughs> um, here, we've, um, we've, um, we've had the local screaming spirit back again. Mm. We have this, uh, we have this, I guess it's a harbinger spirit now. We heard it, myself and my neighbor, we heard it in our respective houses two weeks before the COVID outbreak. And we both heard it the same day last week as well. And uh, yeah, that's nice. Take from that what you will. Some Mothman energy. Some big Mothman energy. <laughs> yeah. But without the Mothman, thankfully. Yeah. Just, yeah. you know, the sound of screaming, terrified people, having what sounds to be nervous breakdowns. Oof. So nice. Fabulous. Nice. Um, but anyway, 
<laughs> yeah, wow. <laughs> so we've had fairies, Mothman energy, and strange dreams. So I guess it's time to consult the runes and give the people what they don't want to hear. Emily, are you prepared to do the honours? I am people, indeed. To tell the people they're probable not fate? Let us consult the runes. Uh, All right, so I got Dagaz. <gasps> and you know the energy that's coming off of this is uh, very Matrix energy. We all live in a Matrix. <laughs> and are we going to wake up or are we not? <laughs> are we chasing that white rabbit? Which pill color are you taking? So does that mean that Lawrence Fishburne is going to show up? I'm fine with that. I'm totally <laughs> fine with that. Yeah, I'd be totally okay with that. <laughs> Rock on. Yeah. As a side note, if you have never watched The Matrix after drinking absinthe, you need to do that. Next on my list to do. <laughs> that sounds like fun. Lawrence Fishburne's words take on a whole new meaning. <laughs> That's all I'm going to say. So, rock on. Um, I feel edified and totally ready to move on to those three fast facts about the topic of our show now. Necromancy, the perfect Halloween topic. Oh, who wants to go first? I think it's Emily going first. Let's uh, start with the etymology of the word necromancy. It comes from the Greek necromantia, which is from necros, meaning dead body, and mantia, meaning divination or oracle, according to the online etymology dictionary. Rocco. Um, historically, it was practiced by the Assyrians, the Babylonians, the Egyptians, the Greeks, the Romans, the Etruscans, and probably a whole bunch of other people that uh, aren't specifically listed here because I think everyone probably practiced some form or another. Um, and it was very popular in the Middle Ages. And all of that, except my little extrapolation there, is from uh, Britannica.com. Well, can't blame them. They didn't have Google back then. So, <laughs> right. So, um, according to Dr. Al Cummins, whose blog you should absolutely check out and where I got this from, the term necromancy most properly refers to magic with the dead that involves a corpse or parts of a corpse itself. So, your bones, your flesh, your fluids. When you're working with shades and spirits, though, then what you're doing more accurately is called skeomancy. This distinction between the two terms for magic involving the dead is attested in early modern texts, such as the excellent book of the art of magic. And like I said, if you haven't checked out Dr. Al Cummins's blog, you really need to. It is a goldmine of magical knowledge. Okay, well, I feel prepared and not at all ready to scream into the void here. Do you guys feel prepared to tell our tales and tease out the deets? Let's dive in. Absolutely. Rock on. So who is up? I believe Emily is up. All right, everyone. Time to pour yourself a drink of something pleasant. Kick back, because I'm going to tell you a story. So one of my favorite books I remember reading when I was a kid was The Lair's Book of Greek Myths. 
gorgeous pictures. Um, I still have the copy that I received for Christmas when I was about seven years old. And that was my first real proper introduction to mythology. Um, I really enjoyed researching this story because it harkens back to one of my favorite um, themes in Greek mythology, which is always underworld stuff. <laughs> and uh, any mispronunciations that I have, I apologize for in advance. So according to our epic poet friend Homer, circa the 9th century BCE, Circe, one of the main characters of our story, was the daughter of Helios, the sun, and Perse, who was a daughter of Ocean. Um, there's also an account of Circe being the daughter of the liminal goddess Hecate, but that's another story. She is generally accepted as being a priestess of Hecate. So, second main character, Odysseus. I think we all know who Odysseus is from um, Homer's um, The Iliad and the Odyssey. Uh, so he lands on her island on his way home to Ithaca. He did stay with her for about a year, although different sources give different times. But when he was preparing to leave Circe's island to return home, Circe advised him to visit the underworld to learn the safest route back to Ithaca. And she specifically wanted him to consult with a Theban seer who had died named Tiresias. So the instructions Circe gave were quite specific, and this entire... Uh, formula is taken directly from the Odyssey by Homer, book 10, translated by Peter Green. Odysseus is to spread his white sail and let the north wind power the ship onward. Once they have crossed the stream of ocean, they will arrive at a shore covered with poplars and willows called Persephone's Grove. Here is where the Acheron River and Cocytos River, which are branches of the river Styx, converge. There is a large rock at this meeting point, and here Odysseus is to dig a pit, a cubit deep, deep and a cubit wide. Around this pit, he is to pour a libation for the dead. Circe had a specific order in which these libations were to be poured. First, he would pour milk and honey. Second, sweet wine. And then finally, he would pour some water with white barley sprinkled on top. Then Odysseus is to make vows to the dead that once he is back in Ithaca, he will sacrifice his best barren heifer, load the pyre up with mysteriously vague good things, and make a specific sacrifice to Tiresias of the finest all-black ram. All of that is just the vow that Odysseus must make for when he has returned back home. He still has an entire um, ritual to perform. So Circe instructs Odysseus that he will need to sacrifice a ram and a black ewe and turn them so they are facing Erebos. So in Greek mythology, Erebos is both a place and an actual deity. According to Hesiod's Theogony, he is the son of Chaos and brother to Nyx, goddess of night. Erebos can also mean a place of darkness between Earth and Hades, and in many examples of Greek literature, Erebus is specifically where the dead pass through immediately after they die. So back to the dead ram and you. Once he has sacrificed these animals, Odysseus must turn his back to the animals and turn towards the two streams that are converged, and he will see many of the ghosts uh, gathered already. Odysseus must then have his men flay and burn the ram and you, and then everyone has to offer some prayers to Hades and Persephone, which is only polite considering they're kind of intruding on that their territory and it's always a good idea to um, make a little offering to uh, the death gods when you want to speak with their uh, the you know 
the ghosts that they're in charge of. So Cersei makes a point of telling Odysseus to draw his sword and not let the hungry dead come near the blood of the sacrificed animals until after he has spoken with the seer. Um, she also told him that he would quickly approach Odysseus and explain how to get back to Ithaca safely. That didn't quite happen so quickly as probably Odysseus was hoping because he uh, follows all the instructions as Cersei uh, told him. And as soon as he spills the blood of the ram and ewe, ghosts start like just storming out of this pit. And Homer specifically mentions that there are brides, still unmarried youths, toil-worn old men, and uh, tender young girls, as well as soldiers and warriors all coming out of the pit. So the first ghost to actually approach Odysseus is not the seer. It's one of his dead travel companions, a man called Elpinor. And he had died on Circe's island by getting drunk and falling off a roof. Yes, really. <laughs> I bet he's super excited. His story has been immortalized for all the ages. Um, but yeah, so Elpinor beseeches Odysseus to go back for his body on the way home to Ithaca and to burn him in his armor and bury him by the sea and to place on his tomb the oar that he used to row on the ship with. So Odysseus promises that he will. And while he's sitting there speaking with Elpinor, another ghost approaches that's actually Odysseus's mother, Anticlea. She had still been alive when he had set sail for Troy, and he was pretty understandably upset when he sees her there, um, but he still did not let her approach the blood in the pit because he needed Tiresias to be able to be the first one to drink that. So finally, Tiresias approaches, and uh, Odysseus allows the seer to drink the offering blood. So this seer offers Odysseus advice on how to get back and also tells him that none of his men or his ship will survive the journey, but that Odysseus himself will make it home to Ithaca where he will live to an old age until death comes for him from the sea. Uh, Odysseus does ask the seer why his mother does not seem to know him. Tiresias answers that once his mother is permitted to drink of the blood offering, she will know him and converse with him truthfully. So with that, the seer kind of, you know, fades back into the ether. And Odysseus permits his mother to come forth and drink some of the offering blood. He converses with her about how she died, what the situation was back in Ithaca, you know, caught up on all the information. Uh, there are a lot of other ghosts that Odysseus also speaks with until they started getting kind of worried that Persephone might decide to send the head of the Gorgon up through the pit. I'm assuming that that would be a way to kind of shut down this whole operation. So he gathers his men up and they set sail from the shore back to Circe's island, where they do retrieve the body of Elpinor as promised. So Odysseus uh, keeps his oath and good on him. And that's kind of the first um, account in classical literature about what we call necromancy. Wow. Um, holy hell. That is a whole lot of stuff. <laughs> Yes, it is. That's a condensed version of the story. <laughs> <laughs> I really enjoyed Persephone sending the Gorgon to try and shut down the operation. Yeah. <laughs> that was, um... She was like, enough of these shenanigans. You guys stop this after the Gorgon's coming up for you. <laughs> it almost feels like a mom being like, okay, y'all, let's... Time to go to bed. <laughs> yep, we're done. <laughs> Quit it. <laughs> you, you passed your curfew. Yeah. <laughs> so, um... There were a few things there that I that really stood out to me in that story and that I think we're going to see 
in the other two stories that we have tonight. First of all, I vote that we call Tiresias Teresas, just because that's extra funny. <laughs> that's what I kept trying to not say. <laughs> I could sense you know me it. so well, Kat. <laughs> I could just sense it. Just, just let's go with Teresas. Um, right. The use of water in a pit, you know, like those are really like intermediary spaces, aren't they? When, yeah, when crossing you, those liminal spaces. Yeah, like you dig a pit. It's like you're digging halfway to the underworld. Yeah. <laughs> it's like, I'll come halfway to you, <laughs> you know? Make the journey a little shorter for the ghosts. Yeah, because it doesn't sound easy for them. Mm -mm. They need all of these different offerings to, to really kind of like show up. So it's clearly not easy. And yeah. that's the thing with necromancy. It is, you are going against the natural order in a way that, you know, few other types of magic really do. Um, Which probably is why you have to do it in a very specific order, because mm -hmm. it was a very long list of you have to do this, 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 and this. Mm -hmm. And if Bruce Campbell taught us anything, <laughs> you mess out of bad things happen. <laughs> yeah. And that's the thing, just like with Bruce Campbell, a load of them show up. You yeah. don't just get the people you want to speak to. You open that door and anyone can go through it. Absolutely anyone. So, you know, you kind of have to get, um, you have to kind of just realize it's, it's more than a bog off author on the dead here. You, it's like a, a stock sale. I don't know. Um, and I also find it interesting. Um, well, not interesting, but a parallel I saw was the, um, the sacrificing of black-colored covered animals, like the ram and the ewe. You see this in the Gesta Donorum as well. You know, they make offerings to Frey. I think it's Frey, or whoever, whoever he is called in the Gesta Donorum, because that's like weird fan fiction with different names. <laughs> but, um, you know, the offerings to him were black-colored animals, which kind of hint at his chthonic nature. So, you know, I found that very, like, that's another good parallel to, to keep in mind. And that whole thing about the dead not, you know, knowing people until they drink blood. That's also very interesting. Didn't, yeah. Did anything crop up for you guys listening to that? Um, I, like I said, the order of how to do things and how you have this very long laundry list of, it isn't just something you can accidentally do. Mm. Um, you have a very specific set way to do certain things to get the results you're looking for too, because yeah, he had a lot of people come through, but the one he really needed to speak to had to be the one to get to that offering first. So what we're really saying is, is that it's easy to call up a lot of dead, just not the ones you actually want necessarily. <laughs> right. Yeah. Like the oldie party lines, you know, I need to reach <laughs> this person. How do I get there? I mean, I suppose it's okay if you're being indiscriminate and you're just like, yeah, let's get some dead people. But um, that's not a good idea. It was interesting too that one of the sh the ghosts that he encounters before the seer is his mother, mm. and that could have been a huge deterrent towards his intention of being able to speak with that seer, mm. if he hadn't been able to reel himself back in and be like, you know what, that's not my focus right now, mm -hmm. that's not why I'm here. I need to speak to the seer. I mean, that's that's 
that's a real big uh wrench to throw in the in the mixture you know yeah and props to him for keeping that kind of focus so yeah you know eye on the prize type of deal because that is a very very emotive kind of piece of leverage isn't it yeah you know oh hi mom oh i can't talk to you i've got to do this other thing <laughs> love you oh, and he's rewarded in the end for his focus because he is able to speak with her after he's spoken with the person that he was supposed to be talking to mm-hmm. so at least there's that he gets a little bit of um uh cl- closure to yeah. understanding that his mother has died and is now in the underworld and he's able to say goodbye so that's that's pretty good deal for him i would say Definitely. I mean, I think it's a pretty good deal that he walked away unharmed. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> you know, that, that iron sword wasn't for nothing. Right. And again, like the iron, iron is an apotropaic, you know, mm-hmm. it's, and you, you see the use of iron in, um, in Viking age and sort of like migration period sites where they have a necromantic context, you know, there's this one place, oh God, where is it? I think it's, there's there's all these different markers that archaeologists are arguing sort of set this place as being a cultic site that is necromantic Mm. in nature and there's this line they found this line of buried iron i think it was iron rings kind of like and then this line of fire as well so there's definitely this idea of a barrier between you know and on the other side of the, the line of fire and the rings, you have this sort of platform that they've kind of, I mean, it's theory. We, we don't know exactly what this was for because, you know, what we're doing is we're trying to figure out context based on similar sites that we have clear indications for, you know, or that we have textual co- correlations. So, you know, like we can kind of like, there's some kind of argument that that may have been a safe platform but again it's not it's not certain but this idea of like a a barrier between with iron and fire it's i find that fascinating that by hints the way. towards something oh, yeah mm-hmm. yeah that definitely wasn't again like mia said that wasn't by accident mm-hmm. that was intentional yeah so um Moving on to Northern Europe, I do believe that Nia's story is very Viking Age, or at least Sagaic period. So it is, um, we're going to picture it, it's Iceland in the Viking Age, and we are on a homestead in the middle of Iceland in the Viking Age. Uh, This homestead is owned by someone named Hrapp, and for Hrapp's name to have lasted over a thousand years means he's either a legendary hero, like we have in our last story, or a huge asshole. And you know what? We're going to go with the latter one because he's not a hero. He's legendary, though. Uh, he was known to be violent with his wife, his son, his neighbors, and his animals because, you know, if you're going to go, go all the way. Unfortunately, he was also very healthy, so no one got a sick day from his fuckery until he was really, really old. And on that particular day, he called to his wife, Vigdis, and told her, I've never been sick in my life, so I must be dying. And before she could be really hopeful at this prospect, 
uh, he continued and he gave her very specific instructions. He says, when I'm dead, I want my grave to be dug in the doorway of my fire hall. And when you put me in there, you're gonna bury me standing and facing out of the doorway so I can keep an eye on things. And uh, sure enough, he died not long after making these very specific instructions. And his wife honored his wishes and did what he asked. Now, if this was a normal story, that's where it would end. But this is Cafe Obscura, so of course it does not end there. And you know, if Hrap wasn't enough of an asshole in life, he outdoes himself when he's dead. He starts walking around as a drowder. And as the story goes, he killed most of his servants with his ghostly appearances. He probably laughed his ass over it too. He kept harassing his neighbors in addition to doing all of this other stuff. So anyone who was near his homestead decided enough and they all left. His widow left, his son left, and the neighbors that had kind of stuck around were so tired of being harassed, they dug him up and moved him out into a pasture where he could only bother the cattle and would be far less likely to bother people. And he did manage to bother a few people anyway, but it was a lot less. So, I mean, let's talk about that for a minute. We've got Hrap, who is very, very specific about how and where he wanted to be buried. Again, we go back to those very specific steps. And because of that, he was able to come back and, you know, be an undead pain. And I mean, being an asshole helped, but I mean, the how and what are really where more of a focus here. Well, I mean, archaeology shows us that Hrap wasn't the only person to have been buried in a doorway back in like migration period, but also the Viking Age. They found an entire series of these uh, these burials in um, Rogaland in southwestern Norway, and some of them they actually date back to the the Roman Age, which is um, well the Roman Iron Age, which is kind of incredible when you think about it, isn't it? pretty i mean to go back that far and i mean the doorway is a very interesting place it's a very mun you know from in a mundane way it's how we go from one room to another and one space to mm -hmm. another so to translate that as a portal to have it as a liminal space to go it's not really that much of a stretch for a doorway to be a portal for the dead too mm. it's very logical when you think mm -hmm. about it and again we we move into this whole idea of kind of intermediary spaces you know the water the water has this liminal quality as well mm -hmm. the the pit that's dug towards hades it has a liminal quality as well the um what i find the most interesting about the use of doorways well the uh, the prevalence of doorways in viking age funerary archaeology not that they were massively common but we do have enough to spot a pattern the thing that fascinates me the most about them is that they are very clearly necromantic in many cases, and they, they are not always coupled with physical remains. A lot of the conversation about, you know, what did people do in the Viking Age, in the migration period, with regards to interacting with the dead, a lot of this conversation centers around this idea of there only being physical dead, like Prap. Prap was a Draugr or a Revenant. 
you know? And so a lot of, especially in modern heathenry, a lot of a conversation centers on this idea of the only possible interaction with the dead being that of interaction with the dead via the grave site. You know, there's yeah. the, the concept of disembodied dead is, it's not one that really has a lot of ground in modern heathen thought, which is, I find very sad because, you know, what else are we to make of sites that are clearly necromantic in nature, but then they don't have physical remains, but they do have evidence of offerings, you know? For example, you had these, um, there's an entire group of burial mounds. I don't remember where they are. Let me pull up this paper that I wrote. <laughs> this paper that I wrote and then promptly forgot all about it. Um, the Southwest Portals, Rowie. Ah, yes. Um, so in on the island of Helga, there is a massive mound in cemetery 116 known as mound 30 okay and it's huge it contained multiple burials the main burial a cremation burial is kind of curious because it was found at the southwestern side of the mound as opposed to the center generally speaking we expect to find the important people in the center but on the outside you had these red sandstone slabs that formed a rectangle that were filled with tightly packed moraine and this is a material that they only found in excavated longhouses. And this, this kind of like formation, this structure has been interpreted as a threshold. And this interpretation is, you know, supported by um, the, the, uh, the two large post holes on either side of a structure. But that's not the only, like, and this is in the southwest, okay? This sort of portal is on the southwest. When you, there, hmm, there is a whole number of other mounds in the upland, Södermanland regions of Sweden that actually, you know, they have these southwest portals. There are around 80 of these mounds and the majority of them are empty of remains. Other sites, other, other mounds, they have pottery shards and burnt bones, but the actual burials are rare, which kind of, in my opinion, that kind of puts a hole in the idea of, you know, only physical manifestations of the dead. To me, that sounds like, I mean, how else do you interpret a burial mound? It's clearly necromantic. You also find these mounds with the thresholds with physical remains. So I don't know, like the physical remains don't seem to be completely necessary. There seems to be some element of, dare I say it, cosmos recreation going on. I don't know, getting into sketchy territory here, right? <laughs> Well, and you can draw that from Odysseus' story. He did not have the actual remains of who he was trying to reach or any of the people he was trying, mm. you know, that ended up showing up. Yeah. But he was still able to bring them all in. So. But there are some really know. interesting parallels between ancient Greek ideas of, re of necromancy and what you find in Northern Europe. You know, for example... The, the Greeks also had this idea of revenants. There's only, I think there's only two, two explicit mentions in the texts. One is talking about making sure to armpit your enemy. So, you know, 
slicing their tendons and uh, ligaments so that if they do reanimate, they can't come and get you. <laughs> so they're just this, uh, this lump on the floor. A very Bruce Campbell um, solution, if you ask me. Double tap. Double tap. <laughs> or Monty Python in the night, Black yeah. Knight. Right, absolutely. But you also have, um, the, oh God, this is such a nasty story. There is one story of a revenant and this, um, this guy doesn't know that she's dead and she goes to his house. They, they make a little love and then her parents come and they're like, what the hell are you doing? She's dead. Oh and boy. He, yeah. And he presumably just sort of crawls into a pit and dies at that point because he's like, Oh my God, <laughs> I mean, what would you do? Yeah, that's a yeah. you banged yeah. your revenant girlfriend. What do you do? That could be a bad magical advice problem, couldn't it? It uh, sure could. <laughs> yeah, we have to remember that. But most Greek ghosts were disembodied. You just had these kind of revenants. But in the north, you had this kind of switch around in the textual sources where you just had the uh, the physical ghosts, the revenants, and no mention really of you know disembodied ghosts except for in later documents but the archaeology seems to hint at more of a disembodied view so it's kind of an interesting parallel you can kind of take that further and go kind of crazy with it i know i love looking at the greek magical papyri for parallels like the whole <laughs> calming down your um, calming down your divinatory skull operation <laughs> That's like if Mimia is getting out of control, isn't it? <laughs> yeah. yeah find and one as well. Didn't you find one that yeah. was kind of like... So I found one that was specifically about uh, how to question corpses. Mm. And um, as I was reading this spell, I was like, you know, I have some of these ingredients growing outside. Like I have wormwood. Um, there's some junipers across the street. So I was, you know, going off on my little... Uh, tangent of could I do this I just need a corpse where can I get a corpse <laughs> <laughs> so anyways this one's called um Pytus, the Thessalian's spell for questioning corpses and uh, basically on a flax leaf you write a couple of words in Greek which I'm not even going to try to pronounce um so you write this in ink that's made from red ochre burnt myrrh juice of fresh wormwood evergreen and flax Hmm. Then you put the leaf in the corpse's mouth and ask away. That is very similar to um, something that happens in the Gesta Denorum as well. You know, you have this spell where this uh, this this witch she she raises the dead by writing some spells on a I think it's a piece of wood, and then she puts it under his tongue. Mm -hmm. There's actually a, a paper by. I think it's Stephen Mitchell, and he talks about the parallels between um, some of the accounts of necromancy, these making the corpse talk sort of stories, some of these accounts in the Old Norse corpus and the the ancient Greek sort of Charon obol, the, the sort of like thing that you put in the mouth for Charon, I don't remember what it is, um, it's a coin, oh, no. yeah, I don't know. It's a coin. I just started reading the uh, I just started reading the paper earlier because I was like, "Ooh, hello, <laughs> sexy." So yeah, that um, that's an interesting tie-in right there, isn't it? And 
you know, when you consider that the Greek magical papyri, you know, as old as it is, yeah. significantly older than the Viking age, you know, it, it makes you wonder how early those, you know, the, the sort of like Greek magical papyri and texts text with magical tech that was derived from the Greek magical papyri, papyri moved up into Northern Europe. I think Mitchell places um, the arrival of the grimoires in Iceland in the 13th century. If my memory serves me right, I have a terrible memory. I could be completely wrong, but it is, um, it is in his book, Witchcraft in the... I will have to put this in the show notes, y'all. <laughs> I have this book on my shelf in my bedroom as well. <laughs> Okay. We'll definitely, we should definitely add it to the show notes. It's okay. Oh, we should have show notes. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> All right. There's a great idea. Suggested reading list. <laughs> <laughs> so I guess it's my turn to tell a story now. So buckle up. This one's crazy. My story today comes from the 16th century biography, biography The Life of Benvenuto Cellini. Now, Cellini was one of those people who just, you know, packed a lot of stuff in his life. And his autobiography is full of fighting, accusations of sodomy, shenanigans. Like, he was imprisoned at some point, and then someone tried to assassinate him by slipping diamond dust into his food. It didn't work. Well, it didn't work. And he carried on cellini it up and doing his thing. But that's just kind of like a um, a hint of how how fast that guy led his life, really. It's a wild ride. But in all of that, at some point in 1535, he met a Sicilian priest who was really big into necromancy. They became friends, and eventually this priest was like, hey, Benny, how would you like to come and get your necromancy on with me? You'll need to be brave. And Cellini being Cellini and already having a body count by this point was just like, Hell yeah, Bortha. I've always wanted to do a necromancy. So his priest friend goes and sets everything up and is like, Benny, invite some friends. Let's make a night of it. Now, back then, priest or not, necromancy was a big no-no that could get you burned alive. So you have to imagine here that Cellini was not going to be handing out invites like a Roman orgy, but he did invite his bro, Vincenzo Romali. And his priest friend brought a fellow necromancer. The priest got his special necromancy outfit on. And off they went to the Colosseum of all places to go call up the dead. As you do. So they get there. And they get set up. Cellini tells us that the priest draws these circles on the ground with, and I quote, The most elaborate ceremonial. They lit a fire had precious essences that they were instructed to bring, as well as some stinky old asafoetida. And when it was all good to go, the priest made an entrance in the circle, then guided them in one by one, assigning them different duties for the operation. You know, these duties weren't hardcore. They were mostly taking care of the fire and the various perfumes that they brought. The account then tells us that he handed a pentacle to the... Uh, the other necro fan, and then got started with the incantations. Now, this went on for quite a while. All of this incanting business. Modern practitioners 
tend to be out after a couple of minutes. Oh, I said this three times. He's rammy couplets three times and nothing happened. No, back in the day, they, they went balls to the wall with this. Cellini said it lasted more than an hour and a an half. Sorry, an hour and a half. And that a whole bunch of spirits showed up, several legions of them to be exact. Eventually, the priest became aware of them and was like, Psst, Benny, ask them something. So then he asked them to reunite him with a Sicilian chick that he had the hots for. This was back in the days before things like Tinder and other social media. So I guess he just had to make do with necromancy. Unfortunately, though, Benny didn't get an answer this time. But seeing as he had a good time anyway, he was all in when the priest came back and asked him if he wanted to do another necromancy. This time, though, Benny and his bros went full on balls to a wall. They got a 12-year-old boy that worked for Cellini and who was a, quote, a little lad of pure virginity, which is kind of creepy. And Cellini brought his buddy Vincenzo as well as another friend by the name of Agnolo Gaddi, who will become very famous to you soon. So this time you have Benny, Vincenzo, Agnolo, the priest and the young lad. And they all go back to the Colosseum again, where the priest gets even more hardcore setting up his circle. Vincenzo and Agnolo were put in charge of the perfumes and fire. Benny got to be the standing secondary necromancer with the pentacle. And his poor employee, the 12-year-old kid, was stationed under the pentacle, probably, you know, terrified and hating his life. Like I said, the priest was not fucking around anymore and started calling up an assload of demons and the chiefs of various legions of spirits. And soon, the Colosseum was just full of spirits. Benny says, a hundredfold as many as had appeared that first time. So there they were, balls deep in spirits and demons in the Colosseum. Vincenzo and Agnolo are doing boss work, keeping the fire going, burning those precious perfumes. The kid is probably freaking the fuck out. And the kid is like, hey, Benny, why don't you ask about your girlfriend again? So he does. And then the priest is like, whoa, did you hear what they said? They said you guys will be together again within a space of the month. Hell yeah, Bortha. Okay. All right, I am clearly paraphrasing here with these quotations. But here's the thing. The spirits and demons are still coming in. Now apparently a thousandfold the number as before. And Benny and his bros are beginning to freak out. The priest handles this very politely. Very, very politely. He starts civilly trying to dismiss them. Like, please go home. Please you know, reading his, uh, his license to depart again and again and maintaining this polite demeanor. At no point does he, at no point does he lose his shit and he's like, get out! Like on that meme you see on Facebook with the pan, banging the pan. And that's when it all starts to go tits up because that little boy under the pentacle who is clearly having what will probably be one of the worst nights of his life starts to lose his shit. And he's describing all kinds of apocalyptic scenery here, like giants trying to force their way into the circle and fierce spirits with weapons swarming around the circle and threatening to kill them. But it's not just the kid who is terrified by this point. Fear is contagious. Everyone else too. 
everyone else is frightened too, frightened too, including the necromancing priest who just carries on with his attempts to politely make them leave. He's Mr. Civility at all time. Cellini being Cellini though, is like, yeah, I was scared, but I wanted to inspire the others with my own bravery, so I just pretended it was cool. All right, bro. Well, and that was fine, until the kids started screaming about dying and everything being on fire. And that's when the priest started, told them to start dumping the asphatida on the coals to make the spirits and demons go. But before anyone could get the asphatida onto the coals, Agnolo shouted himself in terror, providing them with a different kind of ass stench. Like, this wasn't just a little shot either. Benny tells us it was, and I quote, so great an abundance of excrement, and that it was, quote, so much more powerful than the asphatida. And Benny, being the, the awesome kind of friend he is, starts to laugh his ass off, which cheered up the kid enough for him to look up and tell them that the spirits were getting the fuck out as soon as they could because they couldn't handle Agnolo's ass stench. And this was a kind of this was kind of the state of play until the bells rang for matins when Benny and his bros and the kid made their way back to their homes like some kind of, you know, poop dribbling defensive military unit still being followed by Randall spirits. <laughs> That's where we're going to leave Cellini for now. But you should know that he did actually find himself back with his Sicilian girlfriend within the month. And then a few years later, when he was wound up, when he wound up in jail. Oh yeah, a few years later was when he wound up in jail and almost getting killed by uh, being fed ground up diamonds. So that's nice. He was fine. Y'all should know that too. He actually lived until his 70s. And he had something like five children, I think. Like I said, he packed a lot of stuff into his life. So yeah. Benvenuto Cellini, y'all. What a character. I feel like that's a massive, massive understatement of what a character. <laughs> that must have been the most ultimate walk of shame home. Right. <laughs> just, you know, just thinking about it, really, it's just torturous. <laughs> well, and I mean, it also shows that, you know, you can go and do the wildest, craziest, most amazing necromantic stuff. And despite how scared it will be, your friends will still laugh at you if you do something embarrassing. Yeah. I mean, to be fair, I would laugh at somebody if they shat themselves while we were doing the necromancy. <laughs> I would too. I guess it was their exit strategy plan B. <laughs> <laughs> plan P. <laughs> dun, dun, dun. Yeah. Um, so there's a whole lot of stuff in there because, I don't know, Cellini, I think, most definitely did that. There's always a question with Cellini. Is he spinning a tail? You know, like at one point he may or may not have had something to do with the sack of Rome by killing someone, you know? So you kind of like, is this, did this really happen? But as Jake Stratton Kent discusses in, I think it's a Geosophia part two, 
there are a lot of parallels with actual grimoire content and um, necromantic practice that you can find in that story. So, you know, you have the circle. It's complex and ritualized. It's clearly protective, but it also potentially has an element of, oh, here we go again, cosmos recreation there too. You know, in Geosophia, and I absolutely love these two books, Drake's, Jake Stratton Kent traces the roots of Goetia, or as it was known in ancient Greece, Goetia, because Goetia existed way before, you know, Christianization. So, you know, from like the 5th century BCE, you start to get Goetia. And before that, Jake argues that, you know, the roots are in the old Chthonic cults of, you know, ancient Greece, of the ancient, well, of the ancient world, that kind of geographical area. Now, the, Goen, the Goetia, the practitioner of Goetia, the practitioner of Goetia, the word Goetia, it derives from the word Goen, which was a kind of practitioner back in the day. They were largely known for purifications and raising the dead using lamentations and dirges. And some of them, like the philosopher Empedocles, were credited with some quite amazing powers. You know, like they, um, I can't remember some of Empedocles' um, powers, but, you know, he, if you get the chance to read this, read this, because he was a fascinating guy. Jake also talks about volcanoes and the role of volcanoes as doorway, doorways to the underworld in those ancient cults, and then discusses, moves on to the thread of volcano magic in the grimoire tradition, and then draws parallels between the sensor or fire that you find in the magic circle and the volcano. Like for example, you there are these um, operations involving Islamic volcano spirits where the sensor or fire would normally be in where the sensor or fire would normally be in the circle for the right, they depict a volcano instead. You know, so Jake kind of looked at that and was like, huh. Given these volcanic origins of these old cults and the connections with the underworld, they're now depicting this Iceland, like this circle, this specific circle for this Icelandic operation involving volcano spirits. This is now the scent where the sensor is. This is now a volcano. There must be something to that. So you know, like that's um, that's maybe an element of cosmos creation. I can see that, and making you know, it, it it does kind of if you watch, especially if you get those little charcoal discs mm. it does kind of look like a little mini volcano where you have all that flickering you have kind of the the darker part of the charcoal but you also have that it almost looks like a little mini lava in the middle of your but your would sensor. they have used those back then i don't Probably think not no, but you still like... if you're if you're looking at a fire though yeah and you get a, a fire going with those coals it's still, it's the same visual image. I mean, yeah, we have the modern day equivalent, but if you're looking at a fire, especially if you have a fire going with that's really hot and you keep it going, you're going to see that. And that's the thing about those, um, I mean, not all circles, you know, kind of follow that thread. There's, um, unlike in modern witchcraft, where there tends to be, this is how I cast a circle all the time for everything. When you get to the grimoires, you have this huge variety of different circles depending on various factors such as, you know, who you pester in, the timing of your right, any demon kings or holy names that you should include. 
you know, there, there is a whole lot of worldview built in there, I think, you know, so some of it is, some of it can be called cosmos creation, I think, but I think a lot of it, you know, they are very much rooted in the worldview of a magical system that they, I mean, that's a no brainer sentence. It's late now. <laughs> so Kat, were you speaking earlier about Empedocles? Yeah. Okay. Yeah. I was, I was sitting here thinking I've heard that name before. And then I remembered I've got this book, um, Hecate Liminal Rights that draws heavily on the Chaldean oracles and mm. um, the PGM. And there's a, a whole section on him about how he died because he claimed he was immortal and jumped into the volcano Mount Etna on Sicily. And that's, oh, yeah. that's how he died. So as soon as you said volcanoes and chthonic rituals and such, I uh, immediately remembered that story. It he does... was said to be a devotee of Hecate. Yeah. Yeah. He, um, yeah. Um, I mean, but moving away from this whole, um, this whole cosmos thing in circles, you know, the, the circles in Cellini's account do seem to be predominantly protective. Mm-hmm. You know, they, they are not messing around. They're, they are not there with iron swords saying back dead, back, <laughs> like the ancient Greeks did. You know, they are like, we have a magical barrier and you cannot enter. We have some holy names scrawled on the ground. <laughs> and then you have this, uh, this pentacle. You know, how many modern witches wear pentacles? Yeah, that's uh, definitely yeah. a popular symbol. Yeah, and they they kept the uh, the boy the the boy seer the virgin seer under the pentacle as a form of protection. You know that I find that quite interesting. And then oh, this is one thing that I I like to think about the attendance. You know, clearly, it was who they wanted to invite for the event. You know, but in some of these um, some of the circle diagrams that you see in some of the grimoires. You see a spot marked out for the magician and then two further positions for assistance behind where the magician would stand. You know, um, that I'm going to ask people to put a pin in that for the next episode and it will all become clear while I, why I brought that up. The child clairvoyant that you find that in the Greek magical papyri quite a bit, you know, go and find yourself a little virgin. (laughs) <laughs> never sounds good never sounds good <laughs> oh but asafoetida here we come to another apotropaic um asafoetida and the scent of ass so agnolo gaddy he farted like they they could have used the asafoetida but you know agnolo gaddy put the ass into asafoetida and it worked just as well he is not the only person to have ever kept devils and demons and spirits away from them by farting or shitting themselves. Martin Luther, as in the church reformer, he had a lot of things to say about farting and shitting, amazingly. Now, he actually wrote in Tischreden, which I think is something that you might dig. He wrote, Almost every night when I wake up, the devil is there and wants to dispute with me. I have come to this conclusion. When the argument that the Christian is without the, is without the law and above the law doesn't help, I instantly chase him away with a fart. <laughs> and he also described himself as being 
I am like a ripe stool and the world's like a gigantic anus. And that is also from Tischreden or Table Talk. Yeah, so, oh yeah, and Matins, Daybreak, The Power of the Sun. You know, you had that cool little, um, they only started to move away from the magic circle once the spirits, spirits had started to depart, but also when it was starting to become daylight. You know, this, the, the sun seems to be seems to be protective it seems to be something that you know the dead don't like particularly you see this with um if i remember right the stories about old norse funerals they were done at night you know there's you you deal with the dead at night that's another kind of uh, sort of theme that you find there so we've actually covered quite a few random themes about necromancy and magic here you know, um, we have, but they had a lot of common threads there too. So they, they do, they really very broad, do, but very similar too. Yeah, they, they really do have, um, and I think it's interesting that you have the intermediary space that, that space between the, the circle, the, um, you know, because when you create a circle, you're delineating space and setting it apart, aren't you? You know, like the, the threshold of a door, it's, it's kind of like space apart. It, you know, the, the pit, it's kind of space apart. You are creating intermediary spaces. So I think that is definitely a factor when you are dealing with non-physical dead. And then the offerings, well, and we sing nice songs as well. Very yeah, pretty we gotta songs. give them a little incentive to come and give them, you know, feed them. Yeah. You know, much like teenagers, if you feed them, they will come. <laughs> so And they will bring their friends. Yep. They will bring their friends and they will eat you out of house and home. Mm -hmm. And then eventually they might eat you too because these teenagers have turned into locusts. And now you are living in the Dust Bowl in the 1930s. (laughs) Wow, that went dark. (laughs) 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 All right. So um, I think we've plumbed that as much as we can with our time. Um, Well, I think that's a good segue for our our advice. I think it goes right to the heart of what our question is so oh boy and do i have one so this was volunteered by mortellus who is an actual deaf worker so this is what mortellus asked someone wants you magical problem someone wants you to evict a ghost from their house but the ghost owned it first so who has property rights now remember guys this is bad advice do not do what we tell you to don't try this at home kids all right, Emily. So my, my gut instinct is to tell this person, why stop at one ghost? Why invite all the ghosts in? Just open that energetic door and just let everyone pile on through. Have a party. Ghost party. It's Halloween. It's like Pokemon. Gotta collect yeah. them all. Ghost of Pokemon. Ghostamon. Ghostamon. <laughs> Peekaboo. Really, I mean, if they're there, they should be contributing to the, the household expenses, right? I mean, if you're going to live there, you need to contribute and if not then i think you kind of lose the right to be there right i mean that's how it works with all roommates yeah 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 i mean i kind of think that you know if the ghost was there first it's finders keepers losers weepers and it's a little bit like you know the first kid to climb to the top of a climbing frame i'm the king of the castle you're the dirty rascal you i know that ghost bitch okay (laughs) so you have to do exactly what the ghost says and wants and if it is to move out and live in a cardboard box in the garden, 
then you just got to suck that up, Buttercup. That, that is life. And we are in a, a plague economy right now. Beggars cannot be choosers. So, yeah, you shouldn't have moved into a house with a ghost. Agreed. Yep. Should have done due diligence on that. Absolutely. Absolutely. You only have yourself to blame. <laughs> now pull yourself up by your magical bootstraps and get yourself out of that problem. <laughs> okay. Well said. Okay. I think we answered that well. <laughs> I do too. I think yeah. that Mortellus is going to have a wonderful solution for their magical problem. Um, again, do not try this at home, kids. I do not wish to hear about Ghostamon. I do not. I also do not wish to hear about collecting ghosts, um, moving into gardens because a ghost kicked you out. I don't want to hear any of it. So please do not email me. But just remember, if you have a giant party of ghosts because you invited them all there, if you shit your pants, they will all leave. Oh, now that is actual good advice. <laughs> <laughs> you should not have given the actual good advice. You you broke the rule already. <laughs> it was part of our story. It was tied broken. It. <sighs> oh my I'm god! I'm tying in. I'm tying in. You're tying in and breaking rules. I don't know how oh. to feel about this. <laughs> uh, <laughs> we can always cut it. No, we can't. Oh, okay. <laughs> can't. Any reference to Agnolo Gaddy is getting in there. Trust me. <laughs> oh, see. I'm going to make him so famous. <laughs> <laughs> he deserves to be remembered for his actions. Just like the drunk guy that fell off the roof on Cersei's Island. Exactly. Just like you have these epic stories and then you have the ignominious parts. And when I read these stories, I always hope that that is not me in whatever <laughs> story. <laughs> many, many moons in the future. <laughs> Right. Don't let <laughs> yeah. me be that guy that got drunk and fell off the roof. Don't let me right? be the guy. Don't let me be that guy. No, being that guy is a terrible thing. So, um, I think we have plumbed the depths of that one. Um, in the next episode, we are going to be taking the Halloween theme a little bit further into modern practice. Well, I say modern practice, more like modern fuckery. Um, <laughs> Our specialty. <laughs> and that um that episode is going to be dropping on eleven thirteen, which is Halloween according to the Julian calendar. So you get double Halloween, guys. So hopefully we see you hope there. Yeah, hopefully we, we come in your ears then. <laughs> Thank you for listening to Cafe Obscura and have a wonderful night. Sleep well. Adios.